Bridge. I want to welcome all of you as we begin our Revolution Love is Greater series. Now, there's a number of ways that we can use the word revolution. It can mean rebellion, revolt, protest, or uprising. But it can also mean innovation, transformation, a reversal, and even a movement. And we're taking time to talk in terms of a movement, a movement that Jesus started and one we simply want to continue. You see, the church, the people of God, are a global movement that Jesus started to free people, to make them whole. But we can get distracted and off track if we're not careful. I have to confess, I've been there before. I've been distracted. I've lived in a manner where I appeared to be the church when I actually wasn't. Almost like a whitewashed tomb, good on the outside, not so much on the inside. And whenever we find ourselves in that space, we end up pretending to be on task when we're not. And when we pretend to be on task, we don't have the faith to act, we don't have the hope to believe, and we don't have the love to prevail. We don't have faith to act, we don't have the hope to believe, or have the love to prevail. And we end up playing a part rather than actually being a part of a powerful movement of God, a love revolution. So my heart's desire today and for this series is that we would become the unstoppable force that Jesus created the church to be, a movement and not a monument. There's a difference. Whenever we live as a monument, we miss out on the movement. And whenever our monument is challenged, we can tend to overreact and lash out about it, but we are called to be part of a movement, which is one of the reasons why we as a church say that we don't go to church, we are the church. That helps us keep in frame that the church is the people, are the people of God and not just a place. It keeps us on task. Yet when we gather together and we live week in and week out, we can tend to begin to wonder where the power of God is, where the wonders of God are. That if everything Jesus said about the church is true, why do we, why does the church seemingly struggle? Well, one reason is the inherent reality of a spiritual battle that we have an enemy who seeks to disrupt everything and anything that God is seeking to do. But then there's also the reality that sometimes the church takes a defensive posture instead of an offensive one. That we hide instead of stepping boldly into the powerful movement of God that he calls us into. And in that space, we end up stepping out of his purpose and his plan. Yet, he calls us to be part of a greater movement of him in this world and for his purposes. Missionary C.T. Studd once said this. He said, some wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Now, I like that because the movement of God really calls us to move in a way that really pushes against the gates of hell, to be part of a, a rescue operation, so to speak. And it captures really the mindset behind revolution. Now, there's another reason why the church can seem to be powerless or weak, and that's because we domesticate it. We tame it. Uh, that's actually something that we tend to do as people. We like to domesticate so that we can control and contain something. For example, we take an idea. Somebody gives an idea. We want to break it down, strip it down so that we can wrap our mind around it so that we can file it away as something conquered and understood. We like to tame. Even animals... We make pets, like the poodle. This is a sharp-looking poodle, right? 
But did you know that poodles were first in England and considered rough water dogs with the primary task of hunting? That's a far cry from this bad boy. Or girl. Or boy, I don't know. Take vehicles. The Humvee. The Humvee was designed as a military vehicle to function in combat on the fields of battle in multiple ways with multiple platforms. But over time, it's migrated into the civilian world, and we now have the Hummer. So we've gone from the field of combat to the concrete jungle and driving through Starbucks. But the Humvee was made for more than shuttling kids to soccer practice. Now, it's okay. This vehicle's really, really cool. And poodles are cool too. But it's not cool when we try to domesticate the church. And we do the same thing to the church. Because Jesus didn't suffer and die so that we could build safe havens, but rather so we could expand his kingdom of love. And his love is greater. His love is the greatest. It's greater than anything and everything we can encounter. It's higher than the highest. It's greater than the greatest. It's the virtue of all virtues. And it overcomes fear and doubt. It heals wounds of injustice. It restores what's been broken and lost. It protects and trusts and hopes and always prevails. His love is greater than anything we can ever experience in this life. In fact, his, great, his love is even greater than the thing we know of as despair. Love is greater than despair. That's your first fill-in if you're tracking along in a sermon note guide. This is a helpful tool for you to follow along as we dig into God's word today and I encourage you to use it. Love is greater than despair. There are a lot of things in this world that make life difficult. There is loss, there is pain, there is injustice. And in those moments, we can see our fear turn to doubt, our hope turn to despair, and we can even see love turn to fear. And in those spaces, we end up sitting in a context where everybody's waiting for somebody else to do something. Think about despair this way, if you would. Despair is, is fundamentally hopelessness. It's the absence of hope. And most often it is the byproduct of overwhelming odds and insurmountable opposition. So when we encounter a circumstance, a person, an issue, a challenge, and we can't see a way to reconcile it and, and get to the point of resolution... When that happens, then things like fear and doubt and worry become the conduits that usher in despair into our life. They usher it in, and despair settles in our life, and it pushes out things like hope. And hope becomes just as elusive as the solution we were looking for in the first place. And in that dynamic, as despair settles in, we end up in a posture where we're waiting for somebody else to do something. But we're going to see today that love leads to hope when we live by faith, no matter what the circumstances are. So let's do this. Let's look at an example in Scripture, and I invite you to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, uh, most of the Scriptures are in your note guide and will be up on the screen, but we're going to settle into 1 Samuel 17 and spend most of our time there. We're in the Old Testament in a season where the people of God, at this point known as the Israelites, 
had been led out of slavery from Egypt. They've occupied the promised land, the land that God set aside for them. But when they did that, they did not fully obey. They didn't drive out everybody God told them to drive out. And as a result, they were left in a constant state of conflict with many of those people groups, one of which being the Philistines. Now, in that journey of partial obedience, not full obedience, they also started to struggle with not having a human king. That they had God as king, but they wanted a human king. And so they asked for it, and and God relents to that and gives them tall Saul. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He becomes the first king over a united kingdom. And in Saul's reign, under Saul's reign in 1 Samuel 17, they continue to have conflict with the Philistines. And as we step into this chapter, we see the Philistine army has come out and occupied one hill. The Israelites have come out and occupied another hill. And these two armies are facing each other with a valley in between. And nobody wants to go into the valley, except one man from the Philistine army, a man named Goliath from the place known as Gath. And he's not just an ordinary man, he was a giant. In fact, he was upwards as tall as nine feet, nine inches. I'm six feet, I'm going to add three feet, nine inches to me. This is roughly how tall, whoop, he wasn't wilty. He was sturdy. This is about how tall he was. That's impressive. He was big. Dude was huge. But he wasn't just big. He was strong. He carried more than 125 pounds of armor. He had with him a sword, a javelin, and a spear. The spear alone weighed 15 pounds. And he had an armor bearer that went before him carrying his shield. And he comes out from his army and confronts the Israelites. And here's what he says to them. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Basically, he's saying, look, you're only servants of Saul. You're lesser people. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and I kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were motivated and ready. (laughs) Oh, wait a second. No, I'm sorry. It says dismayed and what? Terrified. Look, if you take dismayed and terrified and you crush them together, you got despairing. And they were despairing. There was fear and dismay in their hearts. And what happens is it creates a situation where everyone in the Israelite army was waiting for somebody else to do something. Because Goliath had successfully instilled fear. In fact, that was the purpose for him coming out in all of his armor, in all of his showboating. He wanted to instill fear in the hearts of the Israelites. It's a great tactic. If you're ever facing an opponent, if you can instill fear in their heart ahead of time, you can win before the thing starts. If there's enough fear in their heart, the fight will never happen. They won't engage. But even if they do engage with that fear, they now have to fight and wrestle with that fear. Words alone can win a battle. And Goliath defeats the Israelites by fear alone. He defeats them by fear. Now, I find that rather interesting because I think that's often the same tactic that the enemy uses with us, the devil. We may not face flesh and bone giants in this world, but we've faced giants of other kinds, spiritual things, other issues in life. And most often, our enemy wants to get us to the place where we embrace fear so that we're vulnerable. When we are dismayed and afraid, 
we become despairing, and despair makes us vulnerable. But don't forget, love is greater. Love is greater. Now, let's step back into the storyline for a moment. See, in the Israelite army are actually three men who are sons of a man named Jesse. Jesse's from Bethlehem. He actually has eight sons, but his three oldest sons have followed Saul to war. Eliab, Abinadav, and Shammah. These three guys are part of Saul's army, and they're there in the midst of this complexity, in the midst of the dismay and the terror, the fear and the despair. In fact, that scenario actually goes on for 40 days. 40 days. Not 40 seconds, not 40 minutes, not 40 hours, 40 days. Day in, day out, Goliath taunting the people of God. That had to have a ripple into the morale and the identity of the army and the people of the nation as a whole. Word had to spread. There had to be an impact that was impacting their spirits as they continued in that space. But whenever despair sets into the equation and we forfeit hope because of circumstances, that's when despair takes hold. But love is greater, and love always allows us to hope. So circumstances lead us to despair, but love leads us to hope. We may be first facing circumstances where despair wants to creep in, but when we choose to embrace love, then that leads to a place of hope when we live by faith. Let me show you what I mean. So Jesse, the father of the three oldest sons in the army, grabs his youngest son David, who you may be familiar with, and he tasks him with going to the camp with bread and grain and cheese and to check on his brothers. And so early the next morning, David takes off, and he arrives at the army just in time to see the Philistines coming out and the Israelites coming out, and the Israelites giving a battle war cry, which is crazy. It's, it's all smoke and no fire. It's a show. They're pretending to be on task when they're not. And so the two armies line up. As this is happening, this is what David does. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. So he's accomplished both of the two tasks his father gave him. While he's doing that, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. So this is day 40. For 40 days, he has said the same thing, the same response from the Israelite army. The only thing that's different this time is that David heard it. That's the only thing that's different. But the Israelites do what they normally do. They saw the man and they all fled from him in great what? Fear. In great fear. Now this is actually a fairly desperate situation for King Saul. It's so desperate that he has made a promise to give to any man who will kill Goliath great wealth, his daughter's hand in marriage, and exemption from taxes. Sounds pretty good. But nobody will take him up on it. It is such a desperate situation. He's put all those out there as reward, and nobody steps into it. Nobody steps up. But David hears about that. He hears about those rewards. He heard what the Philistines said, and he begins to have conversation. He begins to ask around, and he is appalled at what's happening. He can't wrap his mind around it. At one point, he literally says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should stand and defy the armies of the living God? Because he recognizes what's happening. 
in the midst of the circumstances that they don't see how they can resolve, they have allowed through fear and dismay and worry, despair to set in. And they resign themselves to just sitting and waiting for someone else to do something. The Israelites have taken their eyes off of God. They've placed their eyes on themselves and have allowed their circumstances to lead them to despair. Now, one of the sad realities about this is that God always wants to give us boldness and courage to live obediently for him. But that boldness and courage is not in ourselves. It's ultimately in him. And Saul and his army, they had forgotten that. But David is about to remind them. Let me pause before we look at what happens next. I think it's really easy for us to, to... sit back and be indignant about what the Israelites were doing. I'll just speak for me. I I can easily become outraged that they didn't do something. But quite honestly, the reality is that if we don't know that God goes before us, we live in anxiety. Whatever scenario you're in, whatever thing you're facing, whatever giant is before you, if you don't know that God goes before you, you live in anxiety. God wants to give us boldness and courage, but if we don't walk in the confidence that he has gone before us, we walk in worry and we retreat like the Israelites. We do it in relationships. We do it at work. We do it when we have an opportunity to share our faith. We do it as we parent. We even do it in our marriages. If we don't know that God goes before us, we live in anxiety. That's why most people end up waiting for someone else to do something, just like Saul who ironically was the most likely candidate to step in and take up Goliath's challenge. If you remember, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, so he was tall. Plus, he was king, and many probably wanted him to step in and take up the challenge, but he didn't. And part of that is because the reality is that that the Spirit of God had already left Saul in the previous chapter. In chapter 16, we can see that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. He had once been a great leader and military strategist, very successful and very fierce, but that was before the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. And when the Spirit of God leaves, so does courage. And I've got to tell you, my, one of my greatest concerns as a, as a leader, as, as a father, as a husband, is that I would be in a place where I don't know that God goes before me, that his Spirit would depart from me, that I would lose his anointing, I don't ever want to go somewhere that I don't know and have the confidence that God goes before me. Without that, anxiety grips me. I don't want that for my family. I don't want that for our church family. I want us to walk in the confidence that he goes before us. I want you to walk in the confidence that he goes before you. Without that, we have anxiety. When we don't know and live in the confidence that he does go before We live and love and lead in fear. And that's what was happening for Saul and everybody else in the Israelite army. In that space of anxiety, that's where we start to make excuses. That's also where we start to pretend to be on task when we're really not. And when somebody challenges our pretense, we can get upset, overreact, and lash out. It's actually what happened with Eliab, the youngest, or excuse me, the oldest brother. When Eliab heard what David was saying, he got honked, man. He got mad. Scripture says he burned with anger. And I I don't know if that was out of shame, embarrassment, self-condemnation. We can read in chapter 16 that the Eliab was the tallest of all the brothers. It could be that he thought David was trying to guilt him into taking up the challenge and to go. At a minimum, I imagine there had to be some tension between Eliab and David. Because when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel... 
and all the eight brothers were before him. He passed over the tallest and oldest, the most likely person to be the next king, and went all the way down to the youngest and anointed David. That had to create some tension. Regardless of what was behind the tension, I think at least part of it for Eliab was that he realized David was right. Yet despite the anger and the affront and the confrontation from his brother, it didn't deter David. David continued to talk to others about what shouldn't be until Saul heard about it and Saul sent for him. And this is what David said to Saul. David said, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Finally, finally somebody passes the test. David passes the test. He demonstrates that he is a man after God's own heart. And he's more concerned about God's reputation than his own. And he was willing to say that I will go. He saw the problem from spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, while the whole Israelite army was looking at it from human perspective. And he says he'll go. Even Saul was locked into that human perspective. Look at what he says in response. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. And I wonder how many things have not been done in your life because someone told you you can't or you're only. How many times God has called you to step in obedience, called you to risk in, in his name and, and to defend his reputation, but because somebody said you can't or you're only, you didn't. That's what's happening here. That's what Saul is doing to David. But the shift is that faith makes things possible. And, and some people won't understand what the love of Christ compels us to do, but we've got to do it anyway. We've got to do it anyway. Look at what David says in response. David says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Oh man, I love this. This is dependence. This is David saying, I care more about your reputation, God, than my own. I am not trusting in myself. I am putting my hope and my trust in you. And David's hope was in the Lord. It wasn't in the circumstances. It wasn't even in his own abilities. And I love seeing how it's really cool to see David just kind of increasingly becoming more and more bold, more and more bold as this story unfolds. He goes from saying, somebody should do something, to saying, I will do something. And that's a very different thing. Because David didn't care about his reputation. He only cared about the reputation of God. And I've got to tell you, Goliath was defeated right here. This is where the battle was won. When one person chose to live by faith, out of a love for God, this is where everything changed. This is where the battle was won. If the words of Saul and even his older brother could get David to shift to think about flesh and his own ability to embrace fear in the midst of this incredibly ominous opposition, then David would lose all hope and despair would set in. But he didn't allow that. He stayed in step with the Spirit of God and it changes everything. Because fundamentally, 
Where there is faith, there is hope. Where there is faith, there is hope. There's what? Hope. Listen, when we choose to live by faith, things begin to change. And that, this is the beginning of the end for Goliath. So here's what David does. He picks up his staff. He goes to the brook. He picks up five smooth stones. He puts them in his shepherd's bag. And some people like to connect that five, the number five to 2 Samuel 21, where David and his army actually defeat four more giants, all who are relatives of Goliath, one of which was at least Goliath's brother. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what happened there. Kind of cool to think about it. But fundamentally, what I want you to see is that David was living by faith, not fear. And he was choosing to place his hope in God. And he picks up those stones, he puts them in his pouch, and he proceeds to advance against Goliath. And we know from Scripture, it says that then Goliath, with his shield bearer in front of him, I find that ironic, little guy in front of the big guy, advanced too. He closed the gap, kept coming closer to David. And that's a bold moment, remaining in the approach. David's hope was in God. It wasn't in his own strength. It wasn't in his abilities. It wasn't in his resources. It was just God. And he continues in the approach. And I got to tell you, that takes courage. It takes courage to, to not quit in the approach because many times it's the approach that is the precursor to God doing a beautiful, wonderful thing. And many times in that approach, under the pressure and the reality of the circumstances, people bail. But David didn't do that. David knew God was going before him and he remained faithful and he continued to advance even when faced with more taunting from Goliath. So he remains in the approach. It's a bold moment. And then this is what David says. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You know, if it wasn't clear before, it's clear now that this isn't a fair fight. You may think that based on the tail of the tape. In boxing, before fighters fight, they give the tail of the tape. It's pre-fight measurements. And so if we did this here in this scenario, reach and height and training and equipment all go in favor to Goliath, significantly so. You may say, well, add to it. It was two against one because Goliath had his armor bearer. This is not a fair fight. But it's not unfair for David. It's unfair toward Goliath. Because when we walk with God, we never walk alone. And anyone who has spiritual maturity or understanding is able to finish this story. Because this isn't a two against one. It's a two against one plus God. And that means the battle's won already before it starts. It changes the dynamic. The only thing that would have positioned David to lose would for him to stop stepping obediently by faith into the complexity. As long as he did that, God continued to go before him. And that's what David did. So with a sling and one stone, this thing's over. David ultimately had the faith not just to talk about it, but to act, to approach the problem with his hope in God, not his strength or ability or even his resources, just God. And this moment skyrocketed David into fame, but that's not why he did it. He did it for love, for the love of God. Love is greater, and love always begets action. 
Love always leads to action. It compels us to face the giants of life. When, when others are waiting for someone else to do something, God's love compels us to action. It leads us to risk beyond recovery, but not beyond his cover. Every time we do that, there is a greater ripple. Love leads to hope when we live by faith. Look what happens here. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Love leads to hope when we live by faith. Every time. Before this, the Israelites were living in fear and despair. But because David lived by faith, his demonstration of love led to hope out of that faith. They had fear and despair until one person chose to lead and live out of faith over fear. Love begets action in us and in those around us. Love leads to hope when we live by faith. Let's go to some so what realities for us. You know, Jesus did not suffer and die and rise again so that we can build safe havens, but so that we can expand his kingdom of love. And that's important. Love is the key. It, it's so important that Paul reminds us of its significance in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? It's love. The greatest of these is love. Now, since Jesus did not suffer and die and rise again so that we can expand our own kingdoms and build safe havens, he did it so that we can expand and promote his kingdom of love, we need to act. And when we have a complexity in this life, we need to act and engage it by faith. When we engage that thing by faith, we live in a context where we start to function out of love. So by faith, we engage a scenario, we function in that scenario with love, and that ultimately leads to hope. So when love leads to hope as we live by faith, faith, hope, and love become the platform by which God's able to work and move in this world. In fact, when we leverage what we're good at, we engage things by faith, we engage where we're at, then love leads to hope when we live by faith. This is the reason that we continue to strategically invest across the Quad Cities as a church. Whether you're looking at our investment in the local jail where we saw two people choose Jesus for the first time this month, or you're looking at the Esperanza Center and what Vida Nueva is doing in the Florissante neighborhood where we saw five people choose Jesus for the first time this month. Or even the Jefferson Elementary School where God continues to go before us, giants are falling and lives are being changed. In fact, let me show you what I mean. This is an expression of appreciation for our investment of love at Jefferson Elementary that we received from the staff and students at Jefferson Elementary. Check this out. shining cold alone outside you stripped it right down to the wire but i see you behind those tired eyes now as you wade through the shadows that live in your heart you'll find the 
I love that. I see the hope in your heart. Man, love leads to hope when we live by faith. That's what David did. Because he demonstrated his love for God. The Israelite army had hope. He demonstrated his hope out of his love as he lived by faith. That changes everything. Love leads to hope when we live by faith. But I got to tell you, we, we tend to want to avoid the places we call valleys, those, those hard places, the difficult places, the places that challenge our comfort, that require some level of sacrifice. We tend not to want to go there. Even the Israelites had a valley between them and the Philistines, and they didn't want to go into that, a literal valley. We tend not to want to go into the places that require sacrifice, that require us to be all in. But i got to tell you, the valleys are where the greatest victories take place. It's where there's the greatest joy. The greatest needs are met. That we experience the greatest growth as we live by faith, demonstrating hope. People see the hope in our heart and they want to know the reason for the hope that we have. It's easy to want to preserve our comfort. We can't. The moment we do, we create a platform for despair and we become irrelevant to the movement. You know the beauty of the valley? Because it is the greatest place that the greatest place that victories take place and the greatest joy and the greatest outcomes is that God gets the glory. David, David didn't receive the glory. People wanted to give it to him. God gets the glory because there's no other way it can happen except God showing up. When we live by faith, love leads to hope. Look, my heart's desire in this series that we would be the church 
that increasingly awakes to his presence, that comes out of hiding, that approaches the giants of this world to transform these cities as we put everything at the feet of Jesus and we love as he loved, asking him to transform us into the unstoppable force he created us to be in the first place. We can change these cities, but we gotta believe that love is greater. We've gotta believe that. And if you think that your life is irrelevant or you're insignificant or you can't change the complexities that are so messed up, listen, you're wrong. It's simply not true. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus makes something else possible. Love is greater. And we all have at least one giant. We all face one big thing in our life, maybe publicly, maybe privately. But that thing that we face repeatedly that leads us to dismay and to fear and to despair. But love conquers giants, so circumstances can't define them. But I wonder, at this point in your journey, where circumstances are shaping what love should define. I wonder where you're allowing circumstances to shape what ultimately love should define. We all face giants. We all have opposition. We all have obstacles. But faith makes things possible. Not easy, possible. And you can be victorious today in the name and power of Jesus. That's why he came. He died and rose again so that there is hope for us and life for us. And knowing that he goes before us, knowing that he empowers us, gives us hope. But I wonder where circumstances are shaping what you really should allow love to define. When Jesus forgives us, when we ask him to forgive us, we invite him to be Lord and he makes us new creatures in him, that's love defining, not circumstances defining. And you can do that right now. If you've never had that conversation and ask Jesus to define the circumstances of your life rather than the circumstances defining them, you can today do that by asking him to be Lord and Savior. Letting his power work in your life. The Israelites, man, they were living like show poodles and not hunting dogs. They, they let circumstances define their life, not love. And they looked more like suburban taxis than combat vehicles. But David, David loved too much to wait for someone else. And love drives and compels. Here's what Paul said. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Love is greater. David didn't wait for somebody else. Jesus didn't wait for somebody else. And I am so glad. Because the love of God and our love for him should compel us to act when everybody else is waiting for someone else to do something. Not just to say something should be done, but to say, I will do something. That's a very different thing. And as we wrap up, I want to invite you to pick one thing to do this week. One giant to face. One, perhaps, injustice that needs to be addressed. One need you need to meet in the life of somebody else. One habit that you need to let Jesus overcome because love is greater. Pick that one giant and approach. We're supposed to be part of a movement, not a monument. And you can leverage what you're good at right now and you can start making a difference right where you are at. And you can let love lead to hope as you live by faith. We can change these cities. We totally can. But we've gotta believe that love is greater. 
which means we need to let love define because his love is greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in the complexities of this world, in its injustices, in the opposition, in the insurmountable odds we may be facing, that you never leave us or forsake us. Even when we run and hide, when we allow dismay and fear to overcome us, and we give in to despair, you do not forsake us. You still call us back into relationship with you, and you invite us to boldly step with you in your power in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to know where we are allowing circumstances to shape what you want love to define. And I pray your love would define us in everything we say and do. For those that are going to step into relationship with you today, I pray that your love would define in them a whole new story and trajectory. For those of us that need to step boldly against a giant, may your love define and may your love lead to hope as we live by faith. May we be willing to face the giants, Lord, not in our power and strength, but yours. And may you be glorified as a result. I love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said,